Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, I'm Tim Williams. Today's very special guest is Dr. Wei Yang, who is president of the prestigious Royal Town Planning Institute uh, in the UK, but with a global reach. And that's very essential to, I think, the conversation we're about to hear, because Dr. Yang is unique in many ways, but one of them is that she is the first, I think this is true, the first foreign-born president of the RTPI. But also she practices uh, as a planner in both the UK and China uh, in a very unique way. So we're going to get a a real global perspective in this conversation. But also she has a very great passion for garden cities and garden villages, um, which I also share and I grew up uh, in one. So we have a really good conversation today and I hope you'll enjoy it. First and foremost, I always ask people, um, how they are. I mean, it's an extraordinary 18 months we've been through. How are you, uh, Dr. Yang? Wei, if I might call you Wei, how are you? Hi, morning, Tim, uh, from London. Hi, I'm very well, thank you. And, this year uh, actually has been really busy. And uh, because imagine. we have, um, you know, uh, Australia and Sydney are in a different phase of managing COVID, have you seen some uh, Life return to London streets. Uh, is it? Uh, how would you? How would you judge that? Is it lively? It is. I was in Manchester last week, and also I was in London uh, only the day before yesterday. It was very busy. Both cities were very busy. Because one, we we will talk about that in due course. But uh, all cities seem to be having slightly different experiences of of managing this kind of extraordinary era. So um, if you're okay, how do you think the planning profession is? How's it been going during COVID in in the UK? Because um, again, uh, uh, countries will differ. Some countries stopped all um, building and development and other countries like Australia carried on, carried on building uh, big time actually. So how, how was the planning profession in this experience in the UK? In the UK, <clears throat> during the pandemic, during the pandemic, actually the planning profession uh, has been really busy because the um, because all the construction work are still carried on, and also uh, actually planning for planning authorities uh, they received more planning applications even before the pandemic because lots of people they want to expand their house or doing some work during the pandemic time. So actually, the planning profession is even more busy. We have adapted to the digital or the virtual uh, means of work very fast. So all the planning committee meetings were happening online during the pandemic. Now, I think uh, when the lockdown um, <clears throat> had finished, uh, more and more council, they have adapted to a hybrid committee meeting. So you can either join physically or join online. So it's quite flexible. Yeah, so I think the planning profession um, was coping well. Even in our RTPI, uh, we have um, RTPI Planning Excellence Awards uh, every year. We created a new category this year called Planning Heroes in a Pandemic Award. Right. So uh, Cheltenham Borough Council, they won the award because they have adapted quite a, um, a proactive approach to make sure the business they have the flexibility during the pandemic time to be more open to the opportunities. For example, 
uh, more opportunities for cafes, restaurants, and the pubs to adapt to the change. So people can sit in outdoor uh, in a much more uh, easy way rather than they have to apply a license. And uh, I'll come. I'll talk to you later on in the discussion about how you think some of the pl the planning challenges going forward will be. But let's let's stick with uh, what it's been like in the in the UK. Has the RTPI had to change the way it's operated? Yes, very much so. The RTPI uh, the same. We adapted to virtual operation very fast as well. So our magazine and all our events were went online and. Um, Actually, because the uh, institute adapted very quickly and we have providing um, guidance to our members. So I think our position uh, has been very strong. And even last year, we grew our membership. And for the first time, we reached 26,000 members from over 80 countries worldwide. So that's a steady growth. And also during the pandemic, we have been keep promoting the idea of sustainable development especially talking about, say, after COVID, how the planning profession can help the uh, economic recovery. And also we use the opportunity to argue the importance of the planning profession to talk about um, what we can do in terms to revive the economy, tackle inequality, and meet net zero target by 2050 in the UK. I want to talk and to you about the importance of the planning profession because mm -hmm. I think it was it's in your inaugural speech that you um, want to help modernize the profession and to raise its the awareness of, of the importance of planning in the public in the public arena. I think um, yeah. so. I'd quite like to talk to you about that. Well, um, I, I confess, my my wife is a planner, uh, and I've uh, I've always worked with planners, and she was one of those Aussie planners in London uh, that uh, <laughs> are still there. I think helping to transform. Uh, London, but I, let's, let, let me ask you, um, do, when you decided to uh, run for the president and become president, what, what was your ambition uh, for your presidency and what was your observation of the condition of the planning profession in the UK? It's a quite a long story. I think, um, say, the UK, the planning profession in the UK was one of the oldest, uh, say, I think the UK was the starting point of the modern planning profession. But after uh, more than 100 years, I think um, urgently the profession needs to be modernized. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think because um, planning was started, was not a, like a government initiative, was started by people with forward thinking and then majority social uh, reformers. But later on, planning became uh, a government secretary system, part of the system. So it's really how we can distinguish between a statutory requirement to a more independent creative profession. I think we need to draw a line to think about how we can advance the profession more independently. So in my, I put a manifesto uh, for my election. I called for a revival of spirit for a modernized planning profession, because I believe planning profession, we have a significant role to play to tackle the global challenges in a system manner. And also we can achieve collective well-being and fulfillment for all. So in my manifesto, I wrote uh, four priorities. First of all is enhancing our public appreciation of the planning profession. 
Secondly, is strengthening international collaboration on capacity building. Thirdly, is contributing to immediate actions on the climate and the biodiversity emergency. Fourthly, I think it's very important because technology and the future trend is developing so fast. I'm very keen to engage young planners and adapt to new technology to empower the modernization of the planning profession. So that's uh, um, a very big, but also very interestingly international agenda for the RTPI. I think um, some people might have thought, well, the RTPI, that's just to do with the UK. But you mentioned earlier on, you're active in what, 80 countries, you said? Yeah, 80 countries. Yeah. And, you, and your own background is very interesting because you've trained in both China and uh, and worked in, in both China and the UK. And I yeah. I think I'm right in saying that you are, is it the first Chinese born or is it uh, the first foreign born? I'm not uh, president of the RTPI. You are, you're definitely yes. a person of firsts. You are. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> so you've got a really interesting uh, and a broad planning uh, horizon. And we're going to talk about all that. And we're also going to talk about one of your passions, which is garden uh, cities and garden villages, which I'm also very passionate about. And uh, and I agree with you that they are they are a very modern uh, phenomenon as well as a very you know historic phenomenon. They can be um, adapted and made more sustainable, but they are very 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 up to the moment sort of ideas for cities. I think. Well, we'll, we'll yes, we'll, absolutely. We'll, we'll come back and talk about all that. <laughs> um, so, do you think the the pandemic will turn out to be it's a strange word good for the profession do you think it will have changed the profession in any way mm. yes i think in many grounds uh, it has changed the profession already i think as we already covered um, i think the importance of the planning profession has been more kind of uh, obvious because people realize planning is not only about housing or building physical environment it's very much relates to public health and also what we do have a long-term implications to how we can adapt to climate change. And also the uh, community spirit during the pandemic has shown very strongly. So people realize how important to have a community can support each other. So I think that's something wasn't discussed enough before when we talk about planning, but because of the pandemic, people realize planning is the key uh, mechanism to hold everything together. So I think I hope it's a good opportunity for the planning profession to be more recognized and also we can gain more support from the general public. Um, I agree with you completely. And I, I think, uh, but I'm going to put a criticism to you of, of, in a way of maybe that planners had allowed themselves to get a bit narrow. Um, I, I think of planning as you think of planning, which is, it's mm. about planning all the systems for a city. It's about thinking of it in the broad sense, but there's a sense in which planners uh, have sometimes let themselves become narrow focused on, let us say, development control planning rather than strategic planning or master planning. So what do you think about that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's something I've been arguing for the whole time because I keep saying planning profession, although uh, planning profession and the planning system, they are two different things. Although planning system may be more focused on development control, but actually the planning profession we have a much bigger role to play, especially on the strategic thinking. And also we should be critical friends of politicians. So we should really keep saying these are the things we should do. And these are things we haven't been uh, doing enough. So yeah, I've, I've been a key um, advocate for a bigger role planning 
and the strategic planning can play, especially in the current uh, big environmental agenda. If we want to tackle climate change, I think planning profession has a very unique role to play because there is no other profession has this comprehensive scale and also uh, this comprehensive, comprehensive skills to think about all these different disciplines together. So I believe it's a, a very important time for the planning profession to take the leadership role. I think what we need to do is to forge a common and a collective sense of purpose with other good forces uh, in the wider society. I think if we think about all the professions like engineering, architects, landscape architects, all these uh, professions in built and natural environment were created. Um, I think the architects were created earlier, but uh, like landscape architects, the profession in the UK, the Landscape Institute was formed uh, 90 years ago. I'm now a board member of the Landscape Institute. So all these professions uh, were created for a reason because at the time we need some professional skills to make sure actually we do operate professionally. But now we have a quite different uh, set of challenges. And also I think our knowledge base uh, is different. So I believe our professional boundaries need to be merged. And then what joins us together is our shared sense of purpose. So what should be that, what should be done now to make our world a better place for our future generations? So this long-term thinking and looking into the future, I think is the key to join us all together. I think I completely agree with you. I, I also believe that um, planning is so important in the sense that we're describing it, that it'll attract more people to the profession Definitely. once they re re realize how significant it is. And you're planning a neighborhood or a city or something really quite significant. Um, and we need, the best people to do that and i i completely agree with you that i think that i think there's an opportunity coming out of this where we're all aware of the need for systems to work together and for you know land use and transport to work and uh, you know Absolutely. i think we become aware of how our cities and countries work a bit better in, a, in an interesting way yeah it's quite interesting because i i read a report uh, it's called the state of the profession report 2020 and they have already they spoke to lot of uh, professionals or actually directors from um, sustainable industry. They have already listed architecture and the planning are the second of the top 10 occupations for sustainability. And also uh, UN environmental programs, they have published a new document aimed for young, young, uh, for young people. They also mentioned planning profession is a very important future profession. Very I think sometimes yeah. So sometimes we, we don't see that. I think from the government perspective, maybe they see planning in quite a narrow way from. Yeah. But yeah. actually, if we, and also that's why I think it's very important for the public to un understand better about what the planning profession does. Because quite often when I sit, when I take a taxi and then the uh, taxi driver asked me what I do, I said, I'm a town planner. They normally never heard of the profession. So what town planner does? I said, uh, you know architects. So, uh, so I'm an architect for the whole city. Or do you think about the doctor? I'm a doctor of the whole city. And then they understand what is the planning profession. I like that so a I lot. Keep saying, I, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I keep saying, yeah, actually, yeah. our code of conduct uh, for the RDPI is to we advance the arts and science of planning for the public interest. I keep saying, if we do not 
so if the public they don't know us how we can protect their interest so we really have to make that connection as soon as possible so people know there's a profession to look after their interests so you give me a whole new brand for myself now because uh, i'm not a qualified planner but i've got a phd in history and i think about cities so why can't i be a city's doctor i think that's a really good mm. it's a really good idea but uh, there is a lot we can learn from the uh, medical profession because um i think for medical profession there was something uh, it's very unique first of all their profession is much more independent secondly i think how they apply their research into practice is is something we have to learn because they do that very fast and then the medical journals somebody publish a paper and then they can be applied into practice very fast. And there are always um, different research institutes to do that. But I think for planning, it's quite separate. We do have some world leading cutting edge research, but sometimes this research are really stayed onto just like a published journal papers. And then how we can make sure these fundings can apply into our practice and policy. I think is something I'm really interested to do. Is that one of the things that historically is that one of the things historically the RTPI tries to do is to raise the professional development yes. of of planners and I think you make an interesting point that um, you know there's actually in in certain professions research and learning is very continuous and uh, you would hope the same was true of planners I'm not sure that it, that it is but so you were emphasizing quite a lot on the uh, on the research and development. Yeah, um, because I, I did a PhD, so I'm really interested into research. So I have been uh, fostering the connections between research and the practice in my whole career. Yeah. The RTBI has been doing a lot of research, but I, I do feel um, sometimes we are, we are more, say, because I think there is um, planning is quite dependent. It's quite dependent to the, uh, uh, pol the politicians or to the um, political agenda. So sometimes for a research funding to be applied into policy actually takes some time. And also I think our first hurdle is to really try to convince convince politicians for them to understand. And then that can be applied into policy. So I think it's how we can make our profession more scientific based and evidence based. It's very important. Because yeah, you yeah. never argue to a doctor how you should treat your your, your patient. It's a very good point, you know, the, uh, that without that research base, a politician can say, well, that's just your opinion. So mm -hmm. you, yeah, that research base is very interesting. I want to, I want to move the conversation to some of your own professional practice uh, now, if, if you don't, and I'm sure we'll weave in the RTPI and we'll weave in the story of, of where cities are, but let's, let's go to your own professional career. So you, you practice in, in both the UK and China personally as, yeah. as a as a practice um they see would seem very different uh professional context very different uh in all sorts of ways but you you find that you're you you bridge the, the the two different planning um cultures how do you do it and uh what have you learned it's a very interesting question i didn't see there was a fundamental difference because i think it's quite interesting because i I practiced in the UK and also I practice uh, in China. What I see, the, um, there are a lot of uh, similarities in terms of um, the planning history. For example, same mistakes made before in the UK were made in China. So I, I see history repeats itself. Right. And also because uh, the UK uh, cities and urbanization is more advanced than China. So 
I can almost see the future. As I said, the history repeats itself. So I can see the future of where Chinese organization uh, is going. I think that really helps me to understand the, the gaps of what are the urgent things need to be done in China. That helped me to give um, useful advice to the Chinese um, authorities and also to the politicians. And uh, I have been um, I've been promoting an urban rural integrated approach because I when I first um, started to have projects in China, I realized um, the Chinese planning urbanization was very much focused on large cities, the urban rural integration, and also smaller cities and towns were not being considered right. enough. So I start to say we need to take an urban rural integrated approach, which consider the whole territory as one ecological entity. So I use the 21st century garden city approach to try to uh, encourage land value capture and also think about the uh, regeneration of smaller cities and towns and rural communities. Now, now I love this part of the conversation because um... I, I would say a little bit about my own background because it fits into this because uh, although I've been in Australia for 10 years, between 25 and 2010, I was the special advisor in the department for planning for uh, communities and, you know, DCLG, local government. Um, and uh, we were, that was when we first started developing our approach to um, city regions and all sorts of planning reforms. But, but, um, but it was interesting. It was a, at a time when we had forgotten the virtues of things like the garden village, garden cities uh, movement. And even though I knew people like Peter Hall, who was a, like a international expert on them, we weren't really pursuing that. We were thinking very much more of very urban, very dense um, city mm -hmm. development because we'd seen a lot of our cities erode and their city centers go down over the last 30, 40 years. So it was important to restore them but we never really got round to the looking at what to do about a greenfield areas or you know um some of the uh public housing estates that weren't in the middle of a city so i was always very interested in a kind of more sustainable version of of suburbia and i was always very interested in the garden city village movement i think i told you i grew up in a in a kind of public housing version a low density thing of a garden village myself so i'm quite interested in these things so where did your interest come from originally where in, in this whole concept and and when did you start thinking about reforming it and improving it so when did you start first thinking about this idea i started to when i set up my own company uh, in 2011 my um, initial idea was i really want to give more focus on research of the 21st century garden cities because i see there's a huge potential of the garden city concept was developed more than 100 years ago of course we need to adapt that to the 21st century context but I see there's a huge potential to promote sustainability and then tackling climate change and also utilizing smart technology. I think one thing I want to emphasize is uh, Garden City is not only for uh, suburbs or green fields. I think what's the, um, the fundamental thing and most uh, attract me to the Garden City concept is the land value capture, community yeah. governance yeah. and the long term stewardship. Because I worked and lived uh, in Milton Keynes for uh, eight years. So in Milton Keynes, uh, although it's a new town, but the Milton Keynes uh, model used lots of original garden cities model. And the land value capture is uh, one of the key principles applied uh, in Milton Keynes as well. 
So Milton Keynes has 24% uh, of the uh, space uh, of the city um, is garden, is, it's, it's green space, uh, open space. And then normally it's a much higher, um, it is a much higher percentage than normal city green space. And then maintain all this green space would be very expensive. So Milton Keynes Development Corporation, they created the Parks Trust to own all this green space. At the same time, they were given commercial properties. So they do have this annual income to support the uh, maintenance of green space. That's made Milton Keynes so special. But I think when we, uh, because I worked on lots of large scale mass plans, I realized making a planning vacation and get a plan approved or even build a new development is only the first step. Actually, the long life of looking after that and then to how to um, forge the community, how make sure that actually they can, um, a mature community can be developed. I think that's the most, most important part. And then this part are normally not being considered in the planning stage. Can I say so something about this? Yeah, so yeah. You, you carry so on. Garden City, I think, is really the key mechanism. Because, um, yeah, I think that's the key mechanism we should learn. We just don't know enough about it, the general I think public, and is, also I, politicians. I think this is absolutely fundamental. I I, I, I want to say a bit about this, because uh, when I was looking at this kind of stuff well, back in the 25-2010, we were looking at how the Newtown Development Corporations had been created, what they'd achieved, and the mechanisms mm -hmm. that they were using. And as you know, um, one of the you've mentioned them. You've mentioned the value capture stuff. You've mentioned the governance, and you've mentioned the long term stewardship. Yeah. And and those principles are really hugely healthy uh, principles that will help you create great places uh, mm. going on, rather than just large housing estates. You know, they they yes. will they will help you. And I think that's really important. And the for those that don't know that are listening, one of the things that the Garden City Movement did, but also the New Development Corporations did a kind of public sector version of, which is to put a put a line around a piece of agricultural land, and the government or the or the landowner collectively got the uplift from the from the change planning approach, which then allowed them to use that money to develop the place. And so value capture by you know was was a really important part of it. And then governance in terms of they they often have very good. Um, you know, public, um, private, and community kind of engagement and, and uh, oversight of these things, and then long term. So it's not just like a developer coming along, building a few houses and then leaving. It's uh, it's about creating an income stream and a governance to have a long term care for mm. the quality of place and the yeah. and the engagement of the community. And at their best, they're brilliant vehicles for that. I think so. I think you're absolutely yeah. right. So, um, but how do they need to be modernized? Do you think what are the what are the things that you, you think we need to think new to bring to bring to this model? I think, um, of course, um, I think in the UK, because for the new towns was government uh, development cooperation, yeah. so it was it was the uh, public sector investment? Actually, I think the government didn't realize. Um, for example, in, in, for example, if we talk about meeting kings. The Midkins Development Corporation, they borrowed money from the uh, central government in like a mortgage. And then actually yeah. they returned the investment much quicker than originally planned. So yeah. they returned the money 16 years earlier than the original. 
plan. So actually, it was one of the most successful public sector investment. But now, I think um, the housing development or development uh, is much more market driven and private sector driven. So the I think for the whole planning system, land value capture was the original idea, because for a greenfield site or for any site, without development on that, the land value would be really low. It's the public investment in infrastructure, like uh, facilities, schools, and hospitals, and also uh, accessibility, made the land worth much more. So the public or the government should capture that value for the long-term public interest. I think Absolutely. that's the idea why we have the planning system. But sometimes we forgot, or we are not really thinking about this system enough in the current context. So you, we now have um, developers, they make money um, easier or more, but actually the communities, they are not benefiting enough. For example, if we only build housing estate without the proper public sector, uh, support or we don't have enough social infrastructure, actually it's the public, it's us, we have to pay more tax to support that. So we really have to think about long-term, how we can uh, manage and facilitate the long-term um, community building. So I think that needs to be all built into our uh, consideration. I think this is very also, important. Sorry, you finish. <laughs> sorry. Uh, and also now, uh, because um, I think actually Howard, he's very advanced of his time. He talked about uh, advanced technology, and he's also always very keen to apply the latest um, technologies in the garden cities. This is the so founder of the garden cities. This is, this is Ebenezer Howard, the founder of the garden yeah. city movement. Yeah. Yeah. So now we are in the 21st century, and our challenge is more complicated. So the climate change has become one of, is the biggest threat to uh, humanity. So when we plan garden cities or when we plan any communities or developments, cities, towns, and villages, we have to think about globally first, to think about how our city and towns position in this bigger environmental picture, and then think about the, the detailed uh, plans. So what I mean, the 21st century garden city is we, we need to have this global awareness about how our development is relates to the overall climate change agenda and how we can tackle that and how we can achieve zero carbon by having proper public transport or strategic transport connections and also make sure we are um, we are kind of designed as part of the nature using nature-based solutions and also long-term stewardship is really about um, how we can cultivate the community so there were lots of research have uh, research have been showing actually happiness is not from power or money actually it's come from a healthy social relationship so all garden city want to create is a healthy social relationship uh, in the early garden cities and also in the new towns there were so many charities foundations uh, set up to support the local community building i think all these things should be considered in our future plans. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. It's interesting, I don't know if you're aware, but the first uh, Newtown Development Corporation that the, the, the government after the Second World War agreed to make, there was a discussion in the British Cabinet about whether it should be allowed to have a public house, a pub, 
um, they were they were so concerned to have, you know, this was like a, a jewel in the crown, the first new town development corporation. They they weren't sure whether they were going to allow it to have a pub, but they they <laughs> did. But I I think one of the things that needs to be stressed, which I think you're doing really beautifully, is that although the Garden City idea is over a hundred years ago. It had many more modern features and more um, kind of mm. mixed community, kind of uh, you know um, integrated community ideas, and than some of the um, most of the kind of housing developments we saw from the '60s and '70s that weren't as good in terms of oh, yes. communi community making. So I think that you know we need to rescue. I agree completely. I think I agree. We need to rescue the idea of the garden village, garden city kind of approach. And then you know adapted to modern circumstances but things mm, like yes. um but governments are for, forever in in i call it the anglosphere you know the uh, in england in america in canada australia giving away public value by by putting infrastructure in free for for the private sector rather than the value capture um uh, being uh, contributed by um the private sector who are enabled to do their development by the infrastructure so mm. so i'm i'm very keen to see a value capture discussion happening is yes, it happening I, in, I think... in it's happening in the uk a lot more and we today is the yeah. day we talk i'm sorry to interrupt you but the day is today is the day my friend gordon adams who's the head of planning at the battersea at the development of battersea, battersea power station he, he has just put a linkedin up to say today is the first day that they traveled on the tube line to the new to the new development at Battersea Power Station, which is entirely built from contributions by the developer mm. for public infrastructure. Yes. So I'm very I'm very keen on this discussion. Sorry, back to you. Yes. Uh, in the UK, land value capture has been used um, through various means. For example, in planning, we have a section of our six contribution. So when you when a developer make a proposal for a development. It's a separate. So once you get to the planning consent, this is a separate legal agreement you have to make between the developers and the local authority to say actually what are the financial or other means of contribution you should make. For example, um, either it's back cash to contribute to a major infrastructure improvement, or you have to provide how many number of schools, medical care centers or other means or how much you need to contribute to, for example, public art or local community. I think these are in mechanism in there. And also uh, in the last few years, there was a, a new mechanism called uh, community infrastructure levy. It's a similar thing. So for you to contribute, for the developers to contribute to the um, um, to the local community building. So Not I, necessarily to I need their to confess, I need to confess to you, Doc. Dr. Yang, that I was involved in the design of SIL, community oh, uh, yes. infrastructure. Like, so, I, so I hope it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah. But I think we could think about more uh, imaginatively. And um, because sometimes I, I think the unique selling point of garden cities is this one value capture is uh, retained within the community. Yes. Because yeah. I think the current model of Section 106 or, or SEALs, I think these are these contributions are made to the local authorities. So they use that um, in their way. But I think it also would be great if some percentage, not all, some percentage of them can be kept returned within the community. So for the community to have a self-governance and also for them to decide how they want to use the money. I think that would be uh, even better. I agree with that because um, although we have um, similar mechanisms for developer contributions 
in Australia, they there's a lot of cynicism in the public community that they 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 don't get they don't get used for the development that they came from. And also the developers get a bit cynical saying, look, we just gave some money to the council and they didn't really use it to help, um, you know, absorb, absorb the new. So I think there really is important to try and tie the value created to reinvestment in, in the area. And I think that's very important um, point. Can I ask you about the, um, so there you are, you are somebody who is um it's really interesting wants to modernize the the garden city garden village kind of uh idea for 21st century sustainable suburbia uh in many ways you've got i think great ideas around valley capture the governance uh and the long-term stewardship which is the thing that gets you the great place so all these things i think are fantastic so are you finding that you are there is an there's an appetite for this both in britain and in china are we making progress yes yes i that's why I decided to um, to become the president because I have been I have been come, I've been giving lectures or speeches uh, to people. I do realize it took more time to convince people rather than doing my own projects. So I think it's a, such a, a important message we need to get out. We need to think about the long term and think about the future of our cities, towns, and villages. So that's why I decided to become the president so I can advocate the key importance of the planning profession more and then to advocate the uh, the best practice more so people can stand better so our fellow planners they can save more time to carry on to do their own job rather than keep use our time to try to convince people because i want a stronger voice for our profession but you've also i think is really importantly that you've you've got an idea of the of a model of development which works well but also gets popular support i think you know i mean i think mm. that because you and i know that lots of people in britain have traditionally opposed development but partly because it hasn't it hasn't always been very good at the development and and because um some of the social and environmental consequences are just not really thought through properly so we need yes. we need more integrated place development and th this this kind of model solves a lot of problems i think Definitely. I think there's a moment, there's a great trust issue. For example, in the UK, the housing delivery has been really slow in the last maybe two decades or even longer. I think the fundamental reason was because the general public, they they don't have the trust to the developers. Because they do feel, it, it's, it's happened many times. Yeah. Developers, when they came during public consultation, they promised social infrastructure, they promised schools medical centers but they didn't come quick enough and then the uh, investment into uh, infrastructure upgrading has been slow too so so the public they realize actually if we do have a new development next to my doorstep it's actually affecting my current life quality yeah so it's really about how we can have a joint shared vision to make sure on the one hand our contribution from the development can benefit everybody, not only say make money for the developers, we can contribute to the city, we can contribute to the existing as well as the future community. At the same time, by having say uh, create or, or rebuild this trust, we can save time so we can focus on the delivery. I think it's very important to have this uh, mechanism to rebuild this trust. That's why in 2014, uh, our submission for the Wolfson's Economic Surprise on Garden Cities, we create this uh, financial, financially variable model 
to show how a shared vision can be created amongst uh, local authorities, communities, and developers. But having that, still adapt to the current development model by using private land, we can still make sure the land value capture can be returned within the community and also for the long-term public benefit. I, I think this is all very um, clever and integrated and makes perfect sense. Um, and, and it's practical because you've, you, we've, we know the models that can make it work and we know that we can create mm -hmm. the value that will help sustain it. Um, so I think it's about having, sometimes the political will is now required to do some of this stuff, I think, but also uh, I'm a great believer that people need to see um, yes. prototypes. They need to see, you know, we know. need to be able to take them to, to, to the um, uh, Dr. Yang village you know uh, that uh, that shows these principles. Are we getting close to getting some places on the ground that you like, that you approve of? Is there something going on that you like? Okay, um, I have been uh, doing. I have been using twenty first century garden city approaches in China in our mass plans in there. So some of them have been using this model has been very successful. That's why uh, my suggestions to the Chinese national spatial planning reform. Also, my suggestions was taken there, so I'm really pleased about that. And also, currently, I think how uh, Chinese government is thinking about sustainable development. I think they have been taking a totally different approach. Uh, it's transformative, so I'm, I'm really pleased on that. So that's a big that's a big issue. I mean, the uh, yeah, it is. I, you are. It's interesting talking to somebody who was actually working and delivering in in China because we read. Um, and we don't know about really that the that mm. the Chinese model of development and thinking about it has been changing over the last yeah few years. And, and, you, and, you, and you and you think that's very true, right? So yeah, it's very true. Yeah, in for example, many of my suggestions were taken in the uh, national spatial planning reform in their uh, new planning guidance for metropolitan areas published last year. If I list some things I suggested, it's a, a strategic, long-term, urban-rural integrated approach. And also, uh, China is developing a single digital base map containing all the natural, ecological, social, economic, demographical, wow. and the cultural and heritage, infrastructure, pollution, agricultural, climate change impact, and hazard information on one single map for the whole country. Wow. That's something I want to achieve in the UK as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it would be amazing if you do that, any of that. I think it's... Uh... Yeah, and also they have been talking about uh, emphasis on the public service purpose of planning and the strengthen public engagement in China. And also the guidance talking about urban design and the placemaking to be embedded into the whole plan making process. And also integration of green and the blue landscape framework in urban development bring the beauty of nature into cities, developing distinctive local characters, and also creating pedestrian-friendly walkable neighborhoods and the human-scale public open space. So now all these are in Chinese planning guidance, That's, which are the things I've been promoting in over a decade. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and have you on the podcast, you know, to, to give a kind of international perspective, but also how very encouraging it is that there's a kind of international dialogue going on now about some and a lot of agreed principles about mm. what a great place is and how you make them great places. There's a lot of agreed uh, principles. Uh, I know, I there, know. Which is, an, a, yeah. a, I don't think it's ever happened before quite as much. 
Yes, I, I, I think the reason why I'm so, I'm a big fan of uh, Garden City is because when I read the book wrote by Abenissa Howard, everything he wrote was in there. And I think just in the 100 years time, we just missed all these key principles. And then it's the people didn't understand the garden cities or was the developers, they, they misled the general public's perception. Actually, actually, actually really misled the development in the 100 years time. So we had urbanization is not about pollution, it's not about high rise, it's not about high density in human uh, places. It really should be about community, should about workable neighborhood, about local jobs, locally produced food, about community support and the social inclusion. So I think these are the things we're all talking about, we're talking about in Howard's book, but actually hasn't been implemented. So I'm really keen to make that to be a understood principle in the future for how all amazing, sustainable development. How amazing it would be, and I, I'm going to go towards the end of this conversation, but how amazing it would be for you, right, to have projects going up in England and in China, right, that reflect your master planning principles. And, and you know, mm -hmm. that, so that's number one. Number two, you must write, I hope you are writing, the, the, the book about, you know, the, the, the 21st century sustainable suburbia that is the, the reinvented garden city. You must, you must write a, an international book about, about I have done about that. This. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, I'm Actually, not, I, I need. I now need to tell people to go and get it. Uh, so, what's it yes. called? Last year, during the lockdown, I wrote a book called "Humanistic Pure Land and the Garden Cities." And is it out now, or is it coming out? It's uh, it's coming out in Chinese first. I'm going oh. to translate that into English yes. very soon. Actually, the the book uh, I started from um, talking about um, Robert Owen, the very beginning. Right. from the new Lanark to talk about his ideas of creating new communities and then talk about Abenice Howard, his success in Natural's Garden City and also talk about how we should design 21st century Garden City and all my principles are in there. Because people know quite little about how Natural's Garden City, Natural's Garden City was the first garden city created in the world by Abenice Howard in 1903. After more than 100, uh, almost 120 years, the city is still very successful. Yeah. And I've been telling how the city uh, has evolved and then what we can learn from the city and how we can use that. The, we can use the principle to apply to the 21st century garden city to tackle the grand challenges we face now. It's interesting. The uh, I think I mentioned to you when we first talked that I grew up in a place which was built in about 1921. So not very long after Ebenezer Howard, and it was called in Welsh, Bertha Garden Village. And mm -hmm. it doesn't have all the principles and it didn't really have the governance sorted, but it's um, very great family homes for working people, walkable to jobs, uh, schools on, on site, uh, green, green space everywhere, in, in, very interesting, inspired by, but not quite the same as a mm. proper garden village so i'm very I've, i grew up in such a thing and I, I really think these are very good models for people to grow up in what i'm going to ask you next we're all going to read your book uh we're going to find a way of translating it you will translate it for us but we're, we're all gonna we're gonna we're definitely gonna look at this book because it's going to be very important could you ever have imagined when you were 
Um, I mean, first, first, let's, let, let's, I'm going to end with some personal questions about you. Then I'm going to ask about um, how we get people from all sorts of backgrounds into the planning profession, and because uh, it's really going to be more important going mm -hmm. forward than it's been for decades. It's going to be more important as we try and yeah. put our cities back together again and make them work, and uh, you know, get transport working and get people sort of near jobs and all that stuff will require really good planning thinking it's going to be a, an exciting and important job if it isn't already i think as you yes, and i agree definitely. You I, and know, I, agree. I think the for the planning profession is yet to come is in front of us the uh, yes. the legacy is in front of us it's not history yes. it's, it's the future i completely definitely. agree right so you've inspired lots of people today i think by saying all this stuff so where i've got to ask you a personal question when did you decide to be a planner number one and number two could you ever have imagined you would end up as the the president of the royal town planning association on the one on the one hand and and working in both china and britain i mean these are you know it's like an unusual result amazing congratulations but when did you first decide to be a planner how old were you where were you <laughs> it's quite interesting um i think i'm um my it's quite interesting. I, I, I couldn't think of any other profession suits me better, but uh, it was quite a coincidence because my, when I was a teenager, I was interested into, um, I, I wanted to be a botanist or archaeologist. I'm interested in uh, plants and, uh, and uh, history. My mom, she wanted, to meet, wanted to me to be an architect. But when I selected university uh, subjects, I saw uh, city planning. I didn't know what it was, but the name just uh, sort just attracted me because I like planning things. So I just think, wow, sounds very, very interesting. So I, I studied uh, city planning uh, in Xi'an University of Architecture and Technology. And I think my, because our degree or our subject, um, my uh, course was in architecture school. So our design was, uh, our degree was very design focused. So I think I was man trained as an urban designer and a mass planner. And then I always, my key interest was um, human scaled public spaces. So I wanted to go to Rome to study urban design. Right. I, I didn't go to Rome, so I came to, uh, to England. And I started working as an urban designer. And then I realized actually design itself cannot resolve everything. So I think it's very important to, to be a town planner and then to think about planning policy. And then I realized actually um, policy itself cannot resolve everything. So kind of reinventing my skills and then trying to learn more. And then I found uh, the Garden City principles. And then the more I know about it, the more I thought I found a gold mine. So I've been using lots of time to research, promote, and implement Garden City principles. See, I think it's a, a brilliant um, understanding and a place to end the, the conversation because um, we started by saying planning is more important than people think it is, and it's a pretty core activity. But it's also for planning to change a bit and to remember that it's about wider placemaking with planning at the as they as bringing it all together. But it's very good for planners to understand not just the design of something, but the economic underpinnings of, yeah. of a place and the governance that makes things work and, and the kind of structures 
that that yes. enable people to share and to cooperate and to integrate. And so it's 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 the place that you make and the various skills required to make the place that planners need to be on top of and be aware of. And I think to help bring all that together um, is is really a, a great job uh, if if you can do it. Um, yes. Uh, as as we end, can I thank you uh, for giving us your time today? I think people will find it really fascinating that your your background, your international overview, your understanding of these processes that make great places work, and your passion to build them uh, in both the UK and and China. I just want to end with a, a kind of a, a, a personal question, or, or a question also about how we inspire. Uh, planners and urbanists to come from all sorts of backgrounds you know uh, so in the UK um, I think I, you will tell me whether I'm right or wrong I've always thought that planning was reasonably attractive in a in a kind of gender way it's uh, I'm sure we could do better but I've, I've always thought that it's done quite well to attract yeah. women into the profession I think that's right but um, I imagine we still got work to do to try and get people from all sorts of backgrounds into planning are you are you, uh, are you involved in trying to enthuse people to become planners in, in, in the UK and indeed internationally? Yes, very much so. Once I was asked to use three words to describe um, how I describe the three words associated with the planning professional most, I said it's the compassion, selflessness and the creativity. Because I think planning profession is a highly creative profession. So I think it should be very attractive to young people. So I'm really keen I have been doing quite a lot uh, in my presidential year to encourage or to speak with young planners, with young people, to encourage them to be future planners, because I think planning profession is so important. And then there are so many different ways uh, you can work within the planning profession. You can be a designer, you can write policies, or you can re do research. And also there are lots of um, skills, like digital skills, we need to develop further. So I think there was huge vast of potentials for the planning profession. So I'm really keen to encourage young people to become lovers, to make our world a better place. And on that note, just to go back to one thing you said, which I think uh, is very interesting about the, the future attractions of planning is, the, is when young people are, who are so passionate about the future of the planet and they realize the role of the built environment in emissions and then in, in, in us able to solve the, the problems around emissions, it does attract them more to the planning uh, world because it's a critical way to intervene to actually improve um, outcomes. And as, as yeah. we move towards COP uh, uh, 26 and and the whole and Glasgow, you know, it's kind of a good place to end to say that actually planning and the built environment environment are going to be quite central to how we um, solve problems of of climate uh, yes. going forward. And therefore, planning is going to be pretty central both the recovery of our cities and indeed the recovery of our, our planet. And uh, as we as we think about those things, what you've said today in this really, really interesting discussion, Dr. Yang, uh, will resonate, I think, and people will, I hope, join up to become planners as a result of your inspiration and read your book and use mm -hmm. it to change the world. Um, I hope we do. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. You've been listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. 
Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.